Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now you know listening to podcasts is awfully like drinking a pint having one is fine but it's more fun to have a second Hi, this is Andrew from the podcast Pop Culture Brews, and you are listening to Homebrewing DIY. After this episode, why don't you come and join me and my co-host Tyler as we do deep dives on pieces of pop culture we absolutely love, and then at the end of our episodes, we reveal to you the beer we were inspired to brew by it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere really where you get your podcasts. So why don't you come and join us and have a pint? Personally, I tend to not brew a lot of big beers. I think the main reason for me is that I don't like to bottle and having a 12% Russian Imperial Stout on tap would take me forever to get through. But Ryan Packmeyer is a home brewer that has found a love for big beers and he's really good at brewing them. So we're going to talk to him today about brewing big beers on Homebrewing DIY. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the cruising ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast. And that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruising. They are no match for scrubber duckies. And you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Building recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. 
This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes, as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on this show, like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look. I shopped around for a place to post my podcast, and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the show that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing, gadgets, contraptions, and parts. This podcast covers it all. Today, we're talking with Ryan Packmeyer. He's a very avid brewer of big beers, and he's really good at making them. So we're going to go through his history, how he learned how to homebrew, and some tips and tricks on making really great big beers. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. Your support is what helps to keep this show coming to you week after week. I also want to thank Clay. He's one of our sustaining Patreon supporters, and he actually came up to one of our homebrew clubs this week and spent time with everybody that uh, I drink a lot of beer with and had a really great time. So, Clay, thanks for coming up. And once again, also, Clay, thank you very much for your support. You can support the show by heading over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. Any amount helps, and it helps keep this show coming to you week after week. Another way to help is you can always review us. You can review us on Apple, podchaser.com, or Stitcher. Head over to your favorite podcast app. If they'll let you write us a review, do it. It helps other people find this show. The last way you can help support the show is to head over to homebrewingdiy.beer. There, you'll find banners from our sponsors, Brewfather and Adventures in Homebrewing. Click on those banners, and it lets them know that we sent you, and they support the show in turn. You can also find the show on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for the handle, at homebrewingdiy, all one word. Now let's dive into a bit about my brewing experiences this week. I finally got the chance to keg the 20 gallons of beer that I made with my boss at work, and uh, it was a good time. He came over, he brought a couple kegs, and we set up shop in my kitchen, and we sat around and kegged some beers. 
Well, one of the cool things was that when we were doing the the brewing and I had to get set up, we had a problem with one of his carboys and it's kind of funny, he couldn't find a bung to go into the top. So I had to bust out one of my old carboys to use because I did have the ability to do that. Well, as we got the beer out of the carboy, I actually busted out one of my scrubber duckies that uh, I got from our fine sponsor and I actually used it on my carboy. And I have to say that I am real not just not joking around. I'm very, very pleasantly surprised with the quality of the cleaning I got with my scrubber duckies. It was something that uh, I'm a little blown away. It worked really well. I had zero issues. It, the magnets were super strong, and it busted through a really, really thick, beefy cruisin on this carboy. Funny thing about that is that that carboy, because we had so little headspace, I didn't put a blow-off tube, and I should always know better to use a blow-off tube because, of course, the one time I don't, it decides to explode. I got yeast all over the ceiling of, of my basement, and I have to say, this 20-gallon batch has been really nothing but problems. I melted my fermenter. I had a blow-off that hit the roof of my basement. It's, I'm actually kind of glad these beers are done. But I uh, had, a, had a glass of my red ale just yesterday. Tasted great. And so, in the end, I think it was worth it. Well, let's dive into our show today. We're going to talk to Ryan Packmeyer, and we're going to dive into big beers. I'd like to welcome Ryan to the show. Let's just jump right into our first question, Ryan. When did you start homebrewing? So I started brewing about 14 years ago with my friend Clay uh, back in Chicago. We really got into brewing because we wanted to brew stouts, and they weren't super accessible back then. Um, regular stuff on the shelf that we would drink would be like the um, the Lion Stout, um, Rogue Shakespeare Stout, um, Beamish, Young's Double Chocolate Stout, stuff like that. Um, every once in a while, the two closest breweries to our uh, our homes were uh, Flossmoor Station and Three Floyds. Every once in a while, they would have like an Imperial Stout release that we really, really enjoyed. Uh, but it wasn't like it is today. It was uh, few and far between, um, especially around where we lived. So we decided to get into brewing because we wanted to brew some of those beers. And also because we kind of wanted to experiment and do different things that... Um, we didn't regularly get to see. <clears throat> uh, our early stouts were not great. We did not have temperature control, um, so they were a little too estuary. I mean, we drank them, and I'd say most of them came out fine. They didn't get infected, but um, they weren't as clean as the commercial examples that we really enjoyed. Um, you know, when you, when you ferment in 70, 75 degrees, um, it's a lot harder to get a really clean profile and allow the chocolate and roasted and coffee all that sort of flavor in a stout shine um so we struggled a little bit early on um the homebrew shop closest to us was about 30 minutes away did not help either uh we were newbies didn't know that much uh but looking back at one of the early recipes we made they had about 10 malts at this homebrew shop um it was like a wine more more of a wine focused shop and anytime we came with a recipe they'd have to sub something and they didn't do phone orders. So you'd come in with, you know, your recipe. And one time they subbed, I think we wanted Maris Otter. 
or it was, it was either Marisada or a Golden Promise, and uh, it was just a you know an English stout recipe that we had, and they subbed it for Crystal. So uh, our beer came out to I think two percent alcohol. It was probably uh, you know Munich or amber malt that gave it the little bit of alcohol that it had. Um, but I remember back then we were so frustrated because we didn't know what happened. But uh, you live and learn. Um, early books that kind of inspired us were. Uh, Randy Mosier's Radical Brewing, for sure. Uh, Jamil's Clone Book, uh, John Palmer's How to Brew. But Radical Brewing was really the focal point for experiments with us. We really liked to experiment, um, even before we were you know, good enough to <laughs> experiment, I'd say, successfully all the time. Um, we'd do a bunch of pepper beers, Earl Grey tea beers, coffee beers. Um, we even did a couple of uh, weed marijuana beers uh, early on as well. But uh, the stouts that really got us in there. Yeah, that, that's one of the cool part, things about living in Colorado is you could totally knock out a weed beer and uh, not get in trouble unless you're a commercial brewery because then that's federally illegal. Just kind of one of those weird things. My next question, though, is why big beers? You tend to make a lot of them. Why'd you get into that? So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of known as one of the big beer brewer type people at the beer club. Um, it's really a few things. Number one, I just really like big beers, um, stouts, Belgians, barley wines. Um, you know, I really like the flavor profile of those beers. Uh, it's really nice to just sit there with a snifter and sip and smell those big beers, um, slowly for a few hours. Um, I just, I really enjoy it. Um, second thing is I do brew plenty of lower alcohol beers, uh, but I just don't usually bring them to the beer club because I don't usually bottle them. And it's it's difficult, at least in my experience, to um, take, take a low alcohol beer and, you know, put it in a little glass container or something off the tap and bring it in and have it really be the same kind of beer that it is if you take it off tap at your house or, uh, or if it is at a bar. It's, they're just a little, they're kind of delicate in my opinion. Um, so if I'm not bottling, you know, a lower I, IPA or, you know, a lager or something like that, I'm usually not bringing it into the beer club just because I'd rather, I'd rather people drink the beer at its best, um, and not sacrifice the quality. So I usually bring my bottled beers, which are usually the biggest beers that I brew. Um, but you know, I do brew a lot of big beers, and the reason why I brew a lot of big beers is, um, I mean, it's cost-efficient compared to, you know, talk about $20 bottles of barrel-aged Imperial Stout that you're buying at the store, um, or if you really want something sought after on the secondary market, it could be hundreds of dollars, and I don't really want to spend that money regularly. I mean, I'll, I'll spend $20 on a bottle of beer. I've spent more before, but I like to make all sorts of different big beers and um, it's much nicer to collaborate with people and split five gallons. Um, take two and a half for yourself. You know, you can drink a gallon or two in the first year. You can save a couple of bottles for aging. You're not going to feel like crap if you drink it four years later and oh no, the last four bottles are past their peak. Um, you didn't just spend 80 bucks on those four bottles. So um, cost, cost definitely comes into that. When you started brewing, how did you start with your equipment set up and what does your equipment look like today? So I started with just a stovetop, pot and cooler. Um, it was always all grain. We never did extract when I started. We read in, I don't know, one of the books that you, probably the Palmer book, if I recall, um, that all grain gave you a lot more control over recipes. And, you know, we didn't really know what that meant, but it sounded good to us. 
so we ended up starting with a pot and a cooler and all grain. Um, in hindsight, we probably should have started extract just to learn the basics more. But, you know, you get excited when you get into things and you just kind of jump in. Um, from there, we graduated to kind of a three-tier, classic three-tier keg system, converted kegs, um, just gravity from the liquor tank to the mash tun, and then into the boil kettle, and then into the fermenter. Um, nowadays, I have a robo brew. Um, I love it for convenience. Um, but I brew with a lot of different people, and I use a lot of their systems as well. Um, so the robo brew is nice because we can use it as a supplementary system. Um, you know, I'm brewing with a friend. We can brew a second or third beer over there. I can bring it places very easily. Um, I can brew indoors in the winter. Um, very convenient. And then if I just want to brew on my own, I can do that as well in the comfort of my own home. And the robo brew, it's pretty simple. Um, I've had a mash and boil before. I've had I've borrowed a grandfather from a friend for a long time while he's out of the country. Um, any of those systems, I think, are uh, definitely good systems that I would recommend. Well, when you're fermenting, what kind of equipment are you do, using there? As far as fermenting, I mostly use stainless steel. I've got some of the lower end uh, Anvil old models, SS Brutech. I don't spend. A ton of money on that stuff. Um, some of them are Christmas gifts. Some of them I just buy when they go on that super clearance. Black Friday is the great time. Homebrewfinds.com has the best deals around the web. Uh, it's probably the best time to buy things on average. Uh, I have a um, drop freezer. Um, it can house two fermentation uh, vessels at once or multiple kegs if I was doing some sort of keg storage, like logger, long-term lagering storage. Um, so I have a temp control on there, controls fermentation. Um, I have a seven tap beer system I just put together. Uh, so it's an old like bar fridge, um, the kind of, the kind of fridge unit you'd see at a bar. It has a uh, compartment on the left side that you can store bottles in and then it can hold about seven kegs, one tank, and then it has a hole going to the outside where you can have another CO2 tank. So, um, it's got plenty of stuff. My uncle helped me build the uh, the tap system, and so did my friend uh, Adam Drager, professional brewer. Um, he's a very, very good uh, engineer and just an all-around builder of things. So he gave me a lot of technical advice because I'd never built a tap system, and my uncle uh, did some welding and helped me put together some of the uh, intricate pieces. Um, seven's a lot, but since the system, I'd had the bar fridge for like a decade and, uh, it could hold that much and, you know, I could toss some carbonated water or kombucha on as well. I don't have to have seven beer taps. So I figured why not, uh, why not go max capacity on it? Well, you talk a lot about doing collaboration with friends and people in the club. Why don't you talk about how you collaborate with others? Yeah, I do collaborate with a lot of other homebrewers, um, I'm in two beer clubs, uh, Croc Keg Ran Out Club. Um, it's a long-standing north side of uh, Denver metro area club. I think it's 20-plus years now, 20, probably 24, 25 years they've been around. And then I'm also a member of the Mash Paddlers, obviously, with you. Um, that's a five- or six- or seven-year-old club. Um, so I meet a lot of brewers in those clubs, and just from conversation, um, we find you know we might want to brew the same type of beer. Um, last year, Andrew Voss, who I brew with sometimes as well, he hosted a big brew day for our club and, um, Evan and I from Evan from the podcast and from the club, we decided to make a uh, mushroom beer, a brown ale, a light English brown ale, um, with some morel and oyster mushrooms that I had foraged. 
um, you know, Evan's into foraging mushrooms. I'm into foraging mushrooms. We're both like light English beers, especially brown ales. And so we paired the two, it came out great. Um, but that's, that's just an example of the kind of collaboration that, um, it really interests me. Um, I like finding people with common interests and collaborating. Um, it's a little more fun on the brew day and it's, it's just fun to try to achieve something like that. Um, probably over the half the beers I make are with my friend Nathan and we both like big beers. We make a lot of big beers together. Um, I mean, we like all styles, so it's, it's usually us just exchanging a few emails and saying, Hey, what do you think about these eight beers? And then we pick one or two for the next brew day. Um, and that's really nice because we split five gallon batches and I really love trying new beers. I really love tweaking old beers. And if you're brewing the same beer over and over and you're brewing 10 gallons of it, you don't have the opportunity to change things that often because it takes you a while to go through 10 gallons. So we just make five gallon batches. We split it. We each have two and a half. Um, and you can get through two and a half gallons yourself, some friends. It's very easy to get through it. Um, so we're brewing a lot. Uh, it's really appealing. The recipe formulation part is really appealing to me. I really like designing new recipes, drinking the beer afterwards, taking notes, bringing it to other people whose palates I respect, um, finding out what they think and just, you know, digging into it and then improving it the next time. Um, there was a, uh, an article on beer and brewing, um, recently from Drew Beecham about the, uh, Avec, well, the best wishes beer from DuPont. It's their strong super saison, their winter saison. Um, it's always been one of my favorite beers. I know Nathan loves it and we've, uh, we've been trying to clone it three times now. And it, so it was, uh, it was fun to read Drew Beecham talk about his struggles in cloning that beer. Cause, <laughs> uh, I think we've ended up with a pretty good beer the third time, but it's still not, uh, I shouldn't say clone. We're trying to make something in the same spirit of it, but um, it's very difficult. But these are the things that you can attempt when you're brewing two and a half gallons. You're getting two and a half gallons out of each batch. Um, you can just brew, 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 uh, learn more things, try new beers. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I much prefer it. I understand and I appreciate and respect the people that make 10, 20 gallon batches. They know what they want. They put it in their keg. They have it on tap. That's their purpose. Um, but for me, I really like the recipe formulation, the experimentation, um, the tweaking, the trying new things. It's all uh, that, that's what really drives me these days. I think when we talk about brewing the types of beers that you do, I think malt's a very important factor in that. How do you choose your malts and what kind of malts are you using? So my favorite malts, um, I guess we start with base malts. Um, I mean, I used to row a lot, but my favorite malts would probably be uh, Pilsner-wise. I really like the best Heidelberg Pilsner. It's a lighter Pilsner malt. Um, then the, it's slightly lighter than their regular best malts Pilsner. Um, I like that a lot. Um, the Wireman Bark Pilsner is really cool. I've always liked Maris Otter and Golden Promise. Um, we've had a, we've had some good luck with Pearl Malt as well. I've really liked Pearl Malt. Um, we started buying it for uh, a heady topper clone years ago and we've used it in barley wines and several other beers and we've just really liked the character of the pearl malt um so those are those are probably my favorite base malts um in the stouts i really like the different chocolate malts um just i like adding three or four different chocolate malts a lot of times for complexity in the stouts and then sometimes uh i really like using carafa uh instead of uh 
instead of like black malt, um, you get a lot less astringency in the beer. Um, when I start, first started making stouts over a decade ago, I'd use black malt, you know, the classic stout recipes and too much black malt. I much prefer, uh, the carafa in those, uh, in those beers. Um, I mean, I don't know. Those are probably my, my favorite malts in general. Brand wise, I really like, uh, Weyerman, Simpsons, um, Crisp, Thomas Fawcett. Those are all good, but there's not really, uh, I don't think there's a brand I really hate. Um, I try to use appropriate malts for the style I'm brewing for the most part. Um, so in an English, you know, English barley wine, I'm not going to use like a Brees crystal malt. I'm usually using a Simpsons crystal. Um, actually I have a bunch of Simpsons crystals, so I usually use that and I really like the flavor of Simpsons in particular. Um, I'm really excited to try some of the local malsters though. Um, there's at least three or four local small malsters in Colorado. I've heard everything from this is the greatest malt ever from people that use it to I didn't like it at all. So um, I, I would like to experiment with it at some time, at some point. I'd really like to try that mecha grade malt that everyone up in the Northwest talks about. Um, I think they're like outside of Bend. Um, I've heard brewers I know up there talk about it. I've heard home brewers. It, it's got a great reputation for being pretty high quality malt. Um, so next time I uh, make it up there, hopefully I'll be driving and I can pick up a sack or two and. Uh, bring it back and play around with it. Uh, but it's, it's really neat. I forgot the website. I saw it at HomebrewCon a few years ago, but there's a website with all the, the local malsters in the country. And it's really popped up uh, sort of similar to the way that hops have grown in uh, just many different qualities. You can buy from many different places in the last like five or 10 years. Um, I remember Simcoe used to be like a rare hop. Now there's like, you know, a really good homebrew shop could have over a hundred different hops, which is cool. And now you're starting to see different malsters. So I'm, I'm really curious and interested to try the different malsters. They're all over the U S you know, dozens and dozens of them. And it would be neat to, uh, really explore that the way that, um, you kind of, I've kind of explored hops over the last five or 10 years and many people have. Well, since we talked about malts, what, what kind of yeast are you using? Yeast wise, um, you know, USO five is probably the yeast strain I use most frequently. Um, our crock club has a dry yeast bank, so we buy uh, dry yeast in bulk, and then um, the club pays for that with the you know money in the club finances, and then uh, the brewers just uh, pay it at cost, and that reimburses, and then uh, we buy more dry yeast when we run out. So we have all sorts of dry yeast, and I love dry yeast; it's very reliable and um, high quality these days. Uh, but USO five is probably the thing I use most. Um, use that for big stouts, um, use it for plenty of IPAs and lighter American beers. Um, you can even make pseudo lagers with it by fermenting it lower and cause it's pretty clean. Um, fake lagers, I should say. <laughs> uh, but for actual lagers, 3470 is what I use the most. Um, the West of East, it's clean, it works, it's reliable, it's nice. Um, I really love the DuPont, as I mentioned before. DuPont, um, their strain is amazing, their Saison strain. Um, so I love that. I haven't had problems with it. Like uh, some people have reported it getting stuck, but I think I just ferment it pretty high. Um, you can ferment it. I mean, I fermented it in the 90s before. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but you know, I've read that DuPont goes in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I think mid to upper 70s is perfectly fine with that yeast. Um, it throws off so many cool flavors, um, that one. Um, I also use uh, WLP-099, super high gravity. 
I like that for super huge stouts. Um, you know, our 20% stout that I've made, I've won a few awards of different 20% stouts, and WLP 099 has always been used for those, um, either, either as the primary stout or, um, I mean, one method is to use USO5, make a 13% stout, um, or a beer that you think will go to about 13%. And then on like day two of fermentation, you just pitch a massive pitch of WLP 099, the super high gravity, and you start feeding the beer DME and sugar, um, DME because it leaves a little more residual, uh, it leaves a little more residual sugar for body, unfermentable sugar. So you're not drying the beer out completely. So, um, on the one, uh, the one big stout that we, we, uh, placed pretty well on, um, we made a 13% stout. USO5, big pitch of that, and I think between day two and day three, a massive pitch of 099, um, and then about 2% ABV potential worth of DME um, and sugar staggered in uh, four different additions. So it went DME, wait a couple days, sugar, wait a couple days, sugar, uh, wait a few more days, and then DME again. And we got you know about 20% alcohol, maybe slightly north of 20%. Um, I've seen breweries get to 21, a little, maybe a little higher, 22 with that strain. Um, but, you know, we don't have a yeast lab and, you know, we're just, we're not winging it, but, you know, we don't have the control that a brewery has or the experience. So, um, we've gotten to around 20, maybe slightly North. Um, and it, it creates a really cool, super big stout that kind of drinks like a port in some ways. Um, the first time we made it, we almost dumped it after six months, um, we honestly were probably just lazy. That's why we didn't. And we just let it sit there. And after a year, it was slightly drinkable. Again, probably would have dumped it if we weren't lazy. <laughs> and uh, a year and a half or two years, it's like, oh, wow, this is starting to taste kind of good. Um, after three years, really felt it was divine. Entered it into uh Big Beers competition, I believe it was. Yeah, Big Beers up in Breckenridge. And uh, it scored like a 46 and a 50 um, from two professional brewers that were judges. Um, so it was uh, it was really neat. Uh, definitely the highest score I've gotten on a beer. Um, so with those big beers, you got to be patient. Um, but it's a really neat way to make something that, um, honestly, is hard to find on the shelf. Black Tuesday is one of the most popular 20% beers that's made a very similar way. But people don't generally make those kind of beers and release those kind of beers regularly. So uh, it's pretty cool to make a batch of that every once in a while. Yeah. Speaking of like big beer techniques, do you have any really cool tips on brewing big beers? So tips for uh, making big beers. Um, first of all, pick a reliable recipe. Um I would just suggest finding something reliable online. Um, find a beer that you like, maybe even ideally a beer that you can get. You know, if you like Belgians, if you like Chimay Blue, you can buy Chimay Blue at the store. There's a good, uh, similar, not direct clone, but a very similar recipe to Chimay Blue, which is a great Belgian dark strong. Um, online, you can find that recipe. Um, same with stouts. You find a stout recipe you like, um, or an English barley wine, whatever big beer you're making. Find something you can get, I would say, so that you can compare afterwards. Um, 
if you really want to experiment and you want to get something that you, is not available in the market, that's fine. Um, but I would try to find a recipe, a reliable recipe online before you go about making uh, a recipe from scratch. Um, it's, it's hard to understand all the components. I, I certainly don't understand all the components that go into, uh, you know, what if you use this crystal malt versus this crystal malt, a darker one versus a lighter one, or, you know, amber malt versus, you know, pale malt versus marisotter. You know, all, there's a lot of things that you can consider, um, hop combinations and all, all sorts of things. So take, I think you should do yourself your favor, get yourself a head start and take a reliable clone recipe you can find online um, and, and go for there for your first big beer. Um, the, the big, the really big thing is to pitch enough yeast. Um, whenever there's a problem, it's quite frequently not pitching enough yeast. Um, so use a reliable calculator. Brewer's Friend is usually what I use. I know Beersmith has a calculator. Uh, but I, I found Beersmith's calculator um, can under undersell the amount of yeast you really, really should use at times. Um, so at least on the dry yeast side. Um, but use a reliable calculator such as Brewer's Friend. You can use it for liquid or dry yeast. You can't really overpitch at the homebrew scale within reason. So err on the side of too much yeast. If it says, you know, you need 600 billion cells, don't pitch 500, target 700. Make sure your yeast package is fresh. If it's a few months old, make sure you put that information in the calculator um, so you know how many viable yeast cells you have. You know, if you have a liquid package that's six months old, it probably doesn't have 100 billion yeast cells anymore. It's going to be less than that. So make sure you do that. Use the yeast calculator. If you have to make a multi-step starter for liquid yeast, it's perfectly fine. Go ahead and do that. Or you can buy, you know, you could buy bricks of dry yeast in bulk to save money, but pitch, pitch enough yeast. It's very, very important. Um, oxygen is pretty important on big beers. Um, hit, hit the uh, wort with some oxygen after you've uh, crashed and you put it in the fermenter and you pitch in the yeast there, uh, you know, make sure you have oxygenated wort to pitch that yeast into. And if it's a really big beer, you can also uh, hit it with some yeast after about 18 hours. Um, it's a tip I picked up from that yeast book from uh, Chris White and Jamil. Um, after about 18 hours, you hit it with a second uh, little blast of oxygen um, after the yeast cells have multiplied just to really give them a little more energy. Um, fermentation control is the other big thing that you see um, problems with when you have big problems with beers. Um, it's yeast and fermentation control, sometimes both. Um, I hear it all the time. People will say, my basement's 65 degrees, therefore I just put the beer in my primary, pitch the yeast, and my beer's fermenting at 65. Um, you know, with a light beer, you can sometimes get away with that. 65 externally is really, during peak fermentation, could be 68 or 69 or 70. And yeah, sure, your ale will probably be just fine at 70, 68, 70 degrees. Um, not as clean as if it was at 65, but internal temperature that high you're probably going to be okay. But when you're making a big beer, the internal temperature, you know, the fermentation could be more vigorous. You're pitching enough yeast. It could be 10 degrees or more. Um, in order to keep a beer at 67 degrees, I've had my uh, ambient temperature of my fermentation fridge in the mid to upper 50s before. So just because your basement 65 doesn't mean you can ferment a beer um, at the right temperature. If you make a stout at 65 degree ambient in your basement, 
day three, you know, peak fermentation, it's, it's going vigorously. If you actually check the internal temperature of your beer, it's probably 75 plus degrees at that point. And at 75 degrees in a stout, you're going to get a lot of fruity esters and it's not going to be a clean stout. It's going to get in the way of all the good flavors that you want in a stout. Um, you know, and same for any of the styles, except for Belgian beers, um, any big beer probably isn't going to benefit from, it's probably going to detract quite a bit if you're fermenting over 70 degrees in the primary, in the internal temperature. Um, another thing is, even if, say, your basement's 58, and you say, great, cool, so during peak fermentation, my beer will be 65, 68 degrees. That's perfect. You know, it's a, it's a good temperature for a lot of big beers. Uh, the problem is, after a few days, the peak fermentation it settles down it's not as vigorous and then the fermentation's still going but now your beer is dropped down to maybe 60 degrees internal and you can have a hard time finishing up the last few gravity points when you're only at 60 degrees on a lot of those ale yeasts um, so ideally you want a temperature controlled place to do this um, you know they have glycol and stuff these days but just a an old freezer you can buy a freezer on craigslist for 50 bucks get one of those um, you can buy a temp control thing for 20, 30 bucks. You can build one for like 10 bucks these days, I think even get one of those. And for under 75 bucks, you've now made your beer. You have complete control over your beers. You can, uh, you can either get the little inlet. Um, I forgot the name of what those are on your fermenter, or, uh, you can just tape the probe to the side and that does a pretty good job to be honest. Um, so ideally, Say you take an English barley wine, you're making a 10% English barley wine, you know, maybe you want it 66 degrees primary fermentation temperature. So keep it at 66, your fridge is going to go down into the 50s for a little bit to keep it at 66. Once a lot of the, uh, you know, sugars have been eaten up by the yeast and primary and the uh, vigorous peak fermentation has uh, subsided a bit. It'll probably be in the low to mid-60s in order to keep that 66-degree temperature. And then you check gravity after a few weeks, and maybe you need a few more points, and you bump it up to 68 or 70 just for the last few percentage points. And now you've fully fermented and attenuated your beer, and then you can cold crash it, get it down to you know 32 degrees, let it clear up, settle, bam, you've got yourself a, uh, you know, a well-fermented big beer. Um, and give it time. Three to four weeks on the primary yeast is not a big deal. The earlier stuff I read was always talking about uh, auto silos. Uh, the, the yeast, if you keep it on the yeast too long, you get off flavors from dead yeast. Um, I think that's more of a concern for commercial breweries. Um, I've heard because of the pressure of the bigger fermenters. I, I've had big beers on yeast for months in the primary before, um, just either forgetting about something or it didn't finish up and I've repitched, and I've never had off flavors from it. Um, yeah, I'm a judge. I've hang out with plenty of people that are beer judges, BJCP judges, uh, pro brewers that have great palates. And believe me, I've never had a beer that suffers from that flaw. And I've had beers on uh, big yeast cakes for months. So I would not worry about three, four, or five weeks uh, in the primary for these big beers. And always take a final gravity. Uh, do not package, remove, keg your beer until you know it is finished fermenting. Um, that's burned me plenty of times. Uh, a beer tasted fine to me. Great. Put it in the keg. Um, or let's bottle it. You know, I've had, I've had it happen with a few big Belgian beers before. Uh, you make a big dark strong or quad and it tastes great. It's been three weeks. Well, beers, beer should be done. I don't see any activity. Um, you know, all of a sudden you bottle it. And if you're bottling it, you know, the Belgian standard for high carbonation, you know, I'm, I'm often, you know, three and a half, four volumes and you have residual sugar in those, uh, in that beer. 
all of a sudden uh, your three and a half to four volumes is going up even higher and you've got, uh, you know, explosive bottles. You pop a cork and it just blows up and your beer is ruined because the yeast is just thrown throughout the whole beer. The half beer that you have left will be mostly, you know, just full of yeast. So don't make that mistake. It's a costly mistake that you don't uh, want to make. Learn from uh, my mistakes and others. Yeah, those are really great tips. If you were to drink some big commercial beers, what what kind of commercial beers do you like? My favorite beers out there commercially um, right now. I mean, oh man, there's so many, so many good beers right now. I go to a lot of beer fests. I go to the Rare Beers, uh, Big Beers in Brackenridge. Uh, Rare Beers is uh, Denver, Wellworks Invitational up in Greeley, um, Great American Beer Fest. There's just so many great beers right now, but um, I really like the Big Stouts from Side Project, their Derivation Series. Um, a couple of their beers in their Derivation Series, which I think is on like 13 beers now, are just phenomenal. Um, Corey King is the brewer there, and he did a uh, an awesome uh, video tutorial over an hour on beerandbrewing.com recently. Um, it's worth it. Sign up, free trial. I think it's like 10 or 20 bucks a month. That's worth it too. Um, and he just tells you all about how he makes his stouts. Um, it's, it's really recipe formulation for everything he does. I mean, he'll tell, he just tells you exactly how he does it and it's awesome. Um, so check that out. That's really inspirational because I love those beers. Um, on that note, some of the other big stouts, um, Kane, New Jersey, uh, I believe they're from. They're awesome. Um, Bottle Logic in California, um, those guys make killer stuff. Um, Fremont's always fun. Uh, Brew 3000 is really cool. Had that recently, Big Barrel Aged Barley Wine. Uh, I've had that a few times this year and really enjoyed it. Uh, locally, um, Wellworks is great. Their Medianoche series is probably my favorite stouts in state. Um, IPA wise, I really like um, Outer Range is nice. They're up in uh, Frisco. They're a lot of fun. Um, some of the East Coast IPAs are really fun as well. Treehouse. Um, my friend Jeff used to go uh, and work in Boston, and he'd bring back Trillium like every other week. So we drink a lot of Trillium. That stuff is good. Uh, but there's there's too many people making great IPAs these days. Um, the New England stuff is fun when it's done well, um, and it doesn't have too much of that hop sweetness when it has that really great flavor. Um, and the really soft mouthfeel. I really love some of those New England IPAs. Um, traditional, well, I shouldn't say traditional, but um, I should say non-New England IPAs, but um, I guess your take on sort of a modern West Coast, but not really that piney all the time. Um, Comrade and Cannonball locally make amazing IPAs that I love. Love to drink. Um, uh, Beerstadt Lager House is probably the place I go to most uh, just because they make phenomenal German-style beer. And they also have uh, wrestling once a month, entertainment wrestling, like that WWE-style stuff from uh, from a local troupe. Um, so it's cool to drink, you know, sit there drinking uh, liters of uh, Hellas while you're ringside watching people, you know, do backflips off a top rope. It's pretty uh, <laughs> it's pretty hard to beat. Uh, Liberati's a cool place, too. That's um, in North Denver as well. And they do the Un beers or whatever. Uh, I don't know how to say it properly, but beers that are also fermented with grape. Um, they're still beers cause they're at least 51% grain, but they ferment with, uh, different grapes and it's really cool the stuff that they're doing. Um, and they have good food there as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Those are, those are some of the places that come to mind when I think about what I, uh, what I really like. Uh, Blackberry Farms is one I really, really like as well. 
some of my favorite saisons stateside probably blackberry farms um I think they mostly use the DuPont strain, or their house strain is similar to it, but they make uh, really, really cool style or really cool saisons um, in the same vein as uh, DuPont sort of. I love those farmhouse uh, funky saisons. Um, speaking of funk, actual funk, uh, sour breweries as well. Um, you know, Casey's always a uh, a good place uh, in state to go for for great uh, sour beer. Well, what is it you're currently brewing? Um. Well, not what I'm brewing now, but what I just brewed. Um, I made an American amber and a uh, Belgian blonde um, with my friend Nathan the other day. And then uh, I separately at the same time made a uh, a pseudo lager. That's kind of referenced it earlier. It was... uh, It was a... uh, It was a two-row and sort of the American hops that you would probably use in a lager a lot of times that I had on hand, at least. uh, Willamette and I think Vanguard is what I had. And then uh, used USO5 and just been fermenting it in the mid-60s. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. Um, it's it's not it's not a lager. It's just going to be a light ale. It's probably more like a blonde ale. But um, I just wanted to see how clean that yeast might go at that temperature and uh, just keep it really simple and just see what kind of a beer I come up with. At the very least, it should be a nice drinkable light beer to have on tap at some point. Um got some stuff that's I'm going to put on the tap soon um a german a traditional german pilsner that i made i love uh i love pilsners um i'm trying to make a beer similar to that uh rathaus pilsner that black forest brewery in germany uh their pilsner is really nice and it's not something to get locally uh locally you know i drink beer beer stat pilsner a lot the slow pour pilsner it's a great great pilsner pivo pills uh from firestone is a hoppy pilsner um i like that as well but i can get those so i don't really want to brew what i can get locally fresh um however that black forest beer doesn't come over here that often and it's like 15 bucks a six pack so uh, i decided to try to really make a beer uh, similar to that and that's with the best heidelberg delighter pilsner malt um tetanger and hollertal hops um, 3740 east step mash and low and slow lagering 50 degrees for a couple weeks and uh slowly lowering it down and then 32 degrees for a few more weeks and um just really clean really clear really crisp uh fully attenuated nice uh smooth beer so that'll be tapped soon and i can't wait because I, I really love a good pilsner um english pale is carbonating right now it should be ready in a day or two i made that with uh andrew voss um english pale except we used his hops um I forget which ones we used. It might have been the ne- uh, I don't know if it's a Neo Mexicanus or not, but um, or might have been Hallertau. I don't know, but uh, it's an English pale with his hops, um, and that that uh, I'm really curious to try that. And then I have a Maybach coming up with also with Andrew Voss. We brewed in December. Um, that I tried recently. Uh, we'll probably keg it in a week or two. It's tasting excellent, so I'm very excited for the Maybach. Um, Next thing I'm going to brew is a English barley wine, a big, thick, chewy English barley wine. So we have an English barley wine that we put in a third-use bourbon barrel that we have. And the bourbon barrel is still giving off plenty of wood and bourbon. Um, it came from a local distillery. It's a 15-gallon. But it's, I mean, third use. The first use, we went eight months. Second use, we went about eight months. So 16 months worth of beer in a 15 
gallon barrel. Um, usually it's stripped out all that bourbon, but this, this, uh, distillery only puts their, uh, I shouldn't even call it bourbon, I guess. Cause I don't think it's bourbon. It's just whiskey. Um, they only put it in there for eight months and then they turn it over. Um, so it's, it's really fast and it means the barrels super boozy. Um, it's really good, but it's super boozy. So you can't put beer in there as long. I'd probably, in hindsight, I probably would have went a little less on the first use for the big stout and then uh, a lot less on the second use, which was like a Firestone anniversary type blend of barley wines and quad and, uh, and stouts as well. But, uh, the second, yeah, second use was way too boozy. So anyways, um, English barley wines in the third use and the alcohol and the, the barrel just, it thinned it out too much. So the English, it's, it's a good beer, but the body's too thin. We didn't build a big enough beer for how much booze and oak was left in that uh, barrel. So I want to make a uh, big, thick English barley wine and then blend it with uh, what's in that barrel, like 50-50. And I think that should uh, get us to where we're, we want to be with a beer that uh, will be half barrel-aged and half not, and it should have the right amount of body, the right amount of booze. Um, so I do that a lot. Uh, I like blending things to taste. Even when uh, using stuff like vanilla beans or coconut or not really cacao nibs because I've never really gone overboard on that. But if you're using vanilla beans, you can go overboard. Same with coconut. So I like splitting the uh, batch in half a lot of times, you know, doing it proactively. And then uh, going ahead and uh, just dousing the, the first half with the uh, coconut or vanilla and being aggressive. Because um, if you overdo it, you can just blend back some of the base. And if you don't overdo it and you get a really good character, then you can do something else with the other half or just keep the other half straight. Um, so I really like blending. Um, I wish I had more capacity, you know, at a professional level, you know, people have all sorts of barrels they can choose and taste and blend to. And that's, that's really neat to me. Um, you know, I'm jealous in that way. On the homebrew scale, it's usually like, you know, at most I'll have two barrels I can blend with, um, put different recipes into, you know, several different recipes into one barrel, but usually don't have many to choose from. Um, one other, speaking of blending, one other cool thing, my friend Brian has a, uh, a wild ale, uh, peach wild ale that is uh, a little too acidic. Um, but it tastes really nice. It has a lot of flavor and I have some, uh, wild peach wine that it has some wild yeast in it. And, um, it's not bad. It has a good peach flavor, but it's a little thin and it doesn't have the depth. So we were blending that uh, last night, actually. Um, he was over here and we were blending that. Um, so we're going to combine those things and I guess it'll technically be a wine because it looks like it'll be about two parts wine, peach wine to one part of his, uh, peach beer, but we're going to go ahead and do that. And we might split half of it off and even put some, uh, like Tahitian vanilla beans, something a little lighter and, um, with the peach, kind of like a little vanilla peach thing going on, uh, for some of that beer. But I'm going to do that soon. I just got to order some vanilla beans and, uh, That'll be the next project uh, as well. Um, so I think that's that's mostly what's what's been going on and what's in the pipeline. Pipeline. Um, I'll probably make some more lagers as well and uh, do for a big stout pretty soon too. I also know that you like to do other things than beer. Why don't you get into a bit of those other projects? Yeah, other than beer, I do plenty of other things. Um, I made port wine for several years. I think my oldest vintage is 2017 for port wine um made a few kits and then uh with my friend nathan and then every year we buy uh grape juice from california and now our third friend justin's in on it and we uh 
we ferment it out and fortify it and, uh, you know, make port wine once a year that way. But I've made uh, some stuff on my own from, I like to forage uh, ingredients um, and cherries I've done, uh, peaches, I've done all sorts of different things I find locally. Last year wasn't a good year for fruit. I just got a bunch of uh, choke cherries and different types of uh I think just a couple different types of cherries, uh, a couple of choke cherry trees uh, for cherry wine. But the year before, there was tons of good stuff. Um, so did a lot of that. Um, I like port wine, so we do port wine, and it also ages pretty well. Um, for the wine, I usually just uh, either juice it or I freeze it. Freeze the. Uh, I used to juice it, and now I actually freeze the fruit uh, for a couple of days, take it out, thaw it chop it up, throw it in the fermenter. Um, and then I usually put boiling sugar water over it, um, to pack kind of pasteurize it, to sanitize that wild yeast. And then I let it cool overnight. And then I pitch my, uh, yeast energizer and my, my wine yeast and, uh, you know, go through with a fermentation there to, uh, you know, acidify it different ways. There's, you know, different things you do along the way to, uh, to dial it into where you want it. But, um, yeah, that's how I'm making my port wine now for the most part. And then you fortify it. Either fortify it when it reaches a certain final gravity. So if you want it to end at like 1.035, you just fortify it then. Or you um, or you fortify it uh, and back sweeten it after. So you let it ferment all the way out. And say you get to, say, 14% alcohol. Great. Maybe you want it to be 18% for your port wine. So you add enough uh, brandy or Everclear or vodka or some sort of mix of those into it to raise it to about 18%. Um, and then you would add sugar to back sweeten it, um, to whatever taste, usually between 1.03 and 1.05, depending on uh, how sweet you want your port and also, you know, what kind of fruit or what kind of grapes you're using. Um, but the fruit stuff is really interesting. I've done all sorts of different ones from strawberry to blackberry to mixed berries. Um, apple port was kind of cool. We've done some apple port. It's a little hot still. It's like two years old, but apple port is pretty cool. It's got some good flavors. So port wine one thing I do, um, ciders, um, again, good apple years. Two years ago, a friend set me up with a group of people that had never really brewed anything and they really wanted to, uh, make cider. Um, they had a lot of experience, like grow, they're like farmers. Um, you know, one of them runs a CSA, a friend of mine, uh, now I should say now a friend of mine who's introduced to me then. So my friend introduced me to them and I'd made cider a few times and there's, he called me the cider expert, which was, uh, <laughs> quite the oversell so we picked uh i think we had over a thousand pounds of apples between like 20 people 30 people something like that and we just had this big production two full days of chopping apples and grinding them and pressing them and you know preparing the cider and a lot of it did not turn out very well because uh too much of the batch of apples we had were a little uh a little too green they weren't ready yet um one of our friends was moving and we just we needed to pick the apples sooner than we should have in hindsight. Um, so there's a little bit too much of that like bitter green apple flavor in a lot of them. Some of them turned out great, but uh, for the most part, the bulk of it was just average, okay cider. Um, so next time we do that, we'll make sure to get super ripe apples. And we probably picked off of like 20 plus trees locally. It was a, it was a big ordeal. So we uh, you live and learn, and you get better, especially uh, when you're new to things. Uh, besides that, I have uh, distilled stuff at friends' houses before. Um, that's that's pretty fun. Nothing major. Um, 
made mead before as well. Uh, I do like mead. I wouldn't mind making a batch or two a year just to have some mead around every once in a while. Um, but mead is really cool. Uh, I have not done sake, um, but uh, it's, it's something that I might be interested in. And then cheese is another thing that people do, cheese and kombucha, and those are two things that uh, I would uh, like to get into at some point in 2020. Are there any other brewing resources out there for our listeners? As far as home brewing resources go, um, as I mentioned before earlier, um, beerandbrewing.com is great. Um, the video series on making the big new style, imperial stouts, the chocolate on chocolate, smooth, awesome stouts, thick stouts. Um, Corey King from Side Project has the video on there behind their paywall. Definitely worth it. Um, if you want to make good, authentic German lagers, um, Bill and Ashley did a series on or did a video on there on telling you exactly how they make their awesome lagers from Bierstadt. Um, so you can learn everything about making German lagers on there. If you want to make good New England juicy style IPAs, um, Neil Fisher from Wellworks, their fantastic Juicy Bits uh, recipe and technique is on there as well. So um, that website is fantastic. It is probably now my favorite place for it. Uh, that kind of thing uh, for new brewing uh, techniques and recipes. Their podcast is great. Obviously, Jamie does an awesome job. And then their content on their website is great. Um, I like the online. I like the uh, forum-wise. I like the American uh, Homebrewers Association website a little bit better than Homebrew Talk. I find that Homebrew Talk is... Um, Homebrew Talk is great. It's big. There's a lot of good resources there, but I just consistently see people respond in an authoritative way um, with information that's just blatantly false. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that if you're reading a forum and you're trying to learn, you need to be able to take someone's, you know, if someone says they're certain of something, you need to be able to take their word. And when people are recommending all sorts of uh, bad practices or just things that aren't going to work or just false, um, it just calls into question some of the uh, content on the site. The American Homebrewers, I find uh, that forum a lot more. There's some there's some really visible people that know a lot on there that post on there. You know, people like Gordon Strong or Denny Khan. But also, I just the things that I do know that I can verify that I see posted there. You know, I see that coming up a lot. So um, when I'm looking into new ideas, it's one, it's one of the forums that I'll go to. And I'm not going to necessarily base a new technique or an idea or advice off of just one single post or source, um, but that site would come into play um, pretty pretty well. Um, besides that, um, you know, Zymergy, the American Homebrewers Association magazine is great. It's always been great. Um, BYO's gotten a lot better over the years. I used to find a lot more issues, I would say, with BYO. Uh, a lot of uh, errors I'd find or just things that are weren't, didn't seem like good advice um, in BYO. But BYO seems to be getting a lot better the last few years. So BYO isn't bad at all. Um, talking to your local brewers if you like the beer that people make. Um, most brewers are very open about how they make things. Um, almost never do I get... I can't tell you that. I don't want to tell you that. Um, you know, people are... In the brewing industry, people are like almost an open book, you know, I'm sure people have their secrets and things they don't want to tell you about, but when you're asking them a question on the homebrew scale, they almost always will, uh, oblige. Um, for me back in the day, uh, Matt Van Wyck, he was a great, uh, he was a local brewer at Flossmoor station making awesome beer. Um, 
and him and his assistant Andrew, uh, they would be happy to share any recipe of any beer they made. I would, you know, I just ask and they would give me the seven barrel version and I just break it down into a homebrew and, uh, you know, I could brew a similar beer to what they were making if I wanted to, uh, which is awesome. It's so cool that those brewers, uh, were just so open about it. Um, really so passionate about their profession but these days you know same thing you can email a brewery even if it's not a local brewery a brewery like email and they'll often tell you things you can get information off their website um i pieced together my uh rothaus clone uh, the pilsner clone basically just from information online um you know, I take the german brewing practices that i learned and then combine it with the recipe information and the gravity information that you already I already have um and then the water profile information that I could find online as well so all that combined and you know it's all there for you um books there's too many to name there's so many so many good books um out there I probably have over 20 brewing books and I consider them all um they're all great to reference for certain things. This the the series, the yeast, the water, the malt series. That's a great, great series. Um, the ones I mentioned earlier are good. Uh, Dave Carpenter's Lager book is fantastic. If you want to brew lagers, know about lagers. That book is a phenomenal resource. Um, so go for that. Um, I recently got a dark lagers book. The uh, Thomas Weyerman uh, Horst. Uh, Dornbush, I think is his name. Can't, sorry, I can't, don't remember the pronunciation. Uh, but it's a dark lager book, and that is a fantastic book as well. Uh, it's all about dark lagers. Um, otherwise, I really like Gordon Strong's books, especially his second book, The um, Advanced Homebrewing or something like that. Um, I really love the way Gordon Strong uh, writes his recipes. He'll write you a recipe, he'll tell you a little bit about the beer. He'll give you the main stats of the beer, the IBUs, whatever, the SRM, the alcohol. Then he'll give you the grain bill and the hops. And then he tells you, uh, like, sort of like recipe variations. Um, so if you decided to experiment a little bit, you know, he might suggest switching a hop or adding a little bit more crystal malt or taking away crystal malt and adding some more dark malts or changing the base um, or adding a fruit. So it's pretty cool. You have a recipe, you have the story on it, you have all the parameters, and then he kind of gives you an idea of how you might want to vary it if you wanted to go in a different direction. Um, and he also tells you about why he did it the way he did it, whether it was, you know, he used Maris Otter because he had some extra Maris Otter on hand or because he wanted, you know, a certain, you know, nutty note in the beer. Uh, but yeah, I found his recipes to be really reliable as well. And I've based uh, plenty of beers that I've made on some of his recipes uh, before. So that Gordon Strong Advanced Home Brewing book is, is great as well. Uh, but I think that's probably, those are the main resources that I would recommend. Um, there are some good breweries that have recipes out there that publish full recipes. Avery has them on their website. Um, Brewdogs posted like every single recipe they've ever made. Um, and actually one of the uh, big Imperial Stouts I made, one of the 20 percenters I made, this one I made by... Uh, I made with my friend Mike, and we um, froze, freeze distilled it. Or I shouldn't really call it distilling because it's not freeze concentrated. The beer from uh, roughly thirteen percent to twenty percent. It was based on a uh, brew dog recipe called Tokyo, their big imperial stout. It's a fairly simple malt bill, uh, simple recipe. So we made a beer similar to that, and then uh, freeze concentrated to about twenty percent, and it took gold in the uh, experimental category at big beers. Um, 
I think it was 2017 maybe. So that was uh, that was pretty neat as well. But yeah, all sorts of resources out there. Um, Bell's I think has a lot of their recipes out there as well. So um, especially these days, you're just not hurting on great resources. Um, there's some great brewing blogs out there. Um, the Mad Furman guy Mike was it Mike his name is he has a great blog um, it's mostly a previous resource because now he has a professional brewery with uh, Scott Janish Janis who also uh, has a awesome blog of resources and a great book um, if you want to mess especially with hoppy IPA type beers if you want to mess around with those beers um, his book takes sort of a science data driven approach to it um, brewlosophy.com is a great one as well um Brewlosophy for me is almost inspirational than anything else. Like you just read experiments and ideas and the comments are probably the most uh, interesting comments on like any, um, you know, beer publication or beer website out there um, because there's a lot of dedicated brewers that um, decide to reply to a lot of these experiments and they talk about, oh, maybe the experiment could have been better this way or they ask questions or they say, I've done something similar. So uh, you get a lot of good discussion in those comments. So it's not just the experiments. Um, and then they have a recipe section, which is cool. They have a podcast, which I haven't listened to yet, but um, podcast seems great as well. Um, so that's that's, an, that's a cool resource as well. Uh, but yeah, a lot of resources for the newer brewer. Um, and you can learn about just about anything these days. Ryan, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about brewing big beers. And uh, we'll have you back again some other time. I'd like to thank Ryan for coming on today's show. It was a really great conversation, and I learned a ton about brewing big beers. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Always look for us at homebrewingdiy, all one word. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week on Homebrewing DIY.